If you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, the sixth chapter of Romans, verse 22. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 6, uh, verse 22 and 23. Listen now to God's word. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you haven't already begun to hear the sounds and noises in the last day or two, uh, you're likely to hear them this afternoon, almost assuredly this evening, and that's the sound and noise of fireworks. Whether you enjoy them or not, uh, we know that behind the lighting of fireworks is, uh, among other things, a date. This day, July 4th, 1776, which is a date that represents the independence of a nation, and along with that, several freedoms and liberties that many people enjoy. So that today, whether it's the liberty and freedom to be able to pursue an education for yourself, uh, to purchase and own one's private property, the freedom to be able to vote and participate in a democratic process, or to freely assemble together uh, and worship the Lord, many people deeply cherish these kinds of freedoms and liberties, and those who do not have them long for them in many ways. Of course, we know these kinds of freedoms and liberties depend upon a set of values, and those values really rest upon a set of morals and a moral people, a people who would live and believe certain things to be right and good. In fact, the second president of the United States... John Adams, uh, prophetically wrote in 1798 to the Massachusetts militia in regards to the danger of spiraling morally regarding iniquity and insolence, he wrote these words. He said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions that are unbridled, uncontrolled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a religious and moral people. It is wholly, completely inadequate for the government of any other. Which means truth and what it is matters. Righteousness and what it is matters. And a people's desire to pursue morality matters. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 33 verse 12, we heard it read earlier, said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the God of the Bible. There is favor and there is blessing from God upon those who joyfully yield themselves to the Lordship of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet, as much as one might desire and value various civil freedoms and liberties, the people of God throughout history have often gone without them. They've often had to persevere and God has preserved them apart from many of those kinds of liberties. For over four centuries, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt. While in exile, the Old Testament church did not enjoy national freedom. They were under the dominion and rule of foreign power. 
the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians. Into the New Testament, the New Testament church was not only birthed during a time of tremendous opposition and persecution, but if you were going to join this band of believers in Christ, you would be doing that which was outlawed by the emperor. No one desires these kinds of circumstances. Persecution, enslavement, imprisonment. That is quite burdensome and demanding to be without certain freedoms. I know serving as a juvenile jail chaplain for a couple years in my life, you could feel the immediate difference between being outside the walls of that high security detention center and then stepping inside. You knew once you were approved to come inside, you were on someone else's turf, someone else's territory, someone else's clock and time, someone else's authority. And every young man or woman that I sat down with in regards to counsel and encouragement and listening to them, not one of them was happy uh, to be there. That's how one can feel without a sense of freedom. And yet this, there is a man, there was a man who was happy and joyful even while in prison. Even while circumstantially, outwardly restrained, even chained, there was someone who knew a kind of freedom that far outweighs and far surpasses any civil freedom that could ever be had. That was the Apostle Paul. Paul could say while in prison to the church in Philippi, yes, and I will rejoice. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Again, I say rejoice. Paul here in Romans, speaks about a freedom that has a greater power, an eternal consequence, and without which a person may have all the civil liberties they could ever desire and yet be enslaved to the darkest power and the worst of evils. And it is that freedom of which Paul speaks here uh, in Romans 6. Let me read it again. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you were looking at the text, you notice these are the last words of chapter 6 of Romans. And they come in the context of Paul masterfully unfolding the message of the gospel, which is a word used repeatedly in Romans, to reveal what the gospel is. So in chapters 1 through 3 of, of Romans, Paul makes the clear point that all people are sinful. In chapter 1, Gentiles are sinful. In chapter 2, Jews are sinful. That your ethnic heritage does not deliver you from this. And then in chapter 3, he has that universal statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Gentiles are sinful. Jews are sinful. All people are sinful. Yet at the end of chapter 3 and into 4, Paul reveals that there is a righteousness, there is a redemption that has been made known apart from obedience to the law. The law and the prophets speak about it. We know Abraham, our father, was counted righteous 
by faith. This is the redemption by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the end of 3 through chapter 4. And what's the result? Chapter 5. Peace with God. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. But it's not only that you've been justified. Something more has happened to the Christian. That's what Romans 6 is all about. And one of the radical changes that the Christian has undergone is a new freedom. A new freedom. Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin. Notice, first of all, how profound the change is that Paul speaks of. But now, he says. It's the same language that he mentioned in chapter 3, verse 21, in speaking about this righteousness. But now, God's righteousness has been revealed through faith in Christ. It's also implied, and I think some versions use the word, in verse 21 of our chapter, the verse just previous to our text. Paul there says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? But what fruit were you getting... Then, when you did not know the Lord God, but now, something has changed. The Christian is able to speak about the then and the now of their life. I was once enslaved to sin and free from righteousness. But now I am free from sin and enslaved to God. This is not so of those of the world. The life of those of the world outside of the Lord do not change. Fundamentally, they do not change. They may change their job. They may change their friends, their hobbies, their tastes. But that old self, which Paul speaks about in Romans 6 as well, that which defines the then is the same. But the Christian has undergone this profound change. It's from slavery to freedom. And the pronoun is important. But now that you have been set free, is this true of you? Is this true of us? And I want to emphasize two things here about this profound change. First of all, notice how how complete it is. When one becomes a Christian... They've not just merely added something to their life or altered something in their life or made a modification here or there. Paul's point is the completeness of the change. So it's not like bringing your jacket or suit or dress to the tailor to have an alteration, a modification, to have it adjusted. To be set free is to receive a whole new wardrobe. We might put it this way. There's no gradations or levels here between the Christian and the non-Christian. You're either a Christian or you are not. So that's the then and now contrast. It's an absolute change from slavery to freedom. The second thing to emphasize is that the change is something that happens to you, not by you. It happens to you. Paul's language is in the passive. Having been set 
free. So we're not active agents in this. We don't decide to be set free any more than a man or woman would decide to step out of a prison cell. One has to set them free. As Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? So we don't regenerate ourselves. We don't birth ourselves. We are born again by the work of God. We have been set free. And it's this that sets the church apart from the world. What distinguishes us? It's not our intellect. It's not that we're smarter than the world. It's not our willpower. It's not our compassion. It's not our physical strength. Oftentimes, it's not even our morality or faithfulness. Consistency in what we profess. We could go through our entire church congregation. We could go through our entire denomination and select the most intellectual, most educated, most compassionate, most perseverant of people. And we could find in the world individuals of equal or greater intellect, education, and compassion. Wonderful traits, but they're not what fundamentally sets us apart. What sets us apart is that something has happened to us. You have been set free from sin and become servants, slaves of God. And if you're like me, it's often that I am having to fight to make that the core identity of one's life. God's calling to be his own. Not intellect or personal accomplishments or compassion or service. No, first and foremost, new life in Jesus Christ. I am his. He is mine. As Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now, it naturally follows to ask, well, what's the nature of this profound change, this freedom in Jesus Christ? Because we continue to sin. We continue to struggle with sin. Pride, gossip, sexual sin, fits of rage, idleness, selfish ambitions. The list goes on. So we need to consider the nature of this change and freedom that Paul's speaking about. When Paul says, you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, he's not referring first to a behavioral change. That's the fruit, that's the flowering of the change. Rather, he's speaking about a change in domain. The believer who has been set free is no longer under the domain and the reigning power of sin. He's been transferred. Sin is no longer his master. Why is this? How is this? Well, this is what Paul's arguing for through the whole sixth chapter. If you look back at verse 2 of chapter 6, Paul says this, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is seeking to encourage these believers to live in a particular way, to pursue a holy life. And so he mentions we have, we've had a death of sorts. How can we who died to this domain and this power still live in it? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that 
we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So when Christ was crucified, that old man, that old nature, under the dominion of sin and the master of sin, was put to death. That was killed, and new life was born in the believer, so that our master is no longer sin, but God. And I think very practically and very importantly, it's for that reason that while we should name our sins, the Christian is no longer named by his sins. Yes, recognize your sins. Sometimes we don't recognize our sins. We don't see all the sin in our lives. But we should seek to recognize it, identify it, name those sins. But your sin will no longer name you as a Christian. You have a new identity. It's in Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Welsh preacher, put it this way, Sin in the Christian is no longer our master. It's just a nuisance. In the non-Christian, it is master. It is Lord. It remains. But sin is no longer our master. It is only a nuisance, only an annoyance, nothing more. To put it another way, to the non-Christian, he says, sin is on top, and that person is underneath. But the Christian's position is that he is on top and sin is underneath, trying to get hold of him. What a glorious difference. Lloyd-Jones' words bring the image to mind of a fighter or a wrestler who has you pinned down. That's the reality for those outside of Jesus Christ. And however free a person or nation may appear to be, apart from the cross of Jesus Christ and our old nature being put to death with him, one is under the dominion of sin. But in Christ, the position has changed. We are on top. Sin is pinned down. You see, whether a person is underneath sin or on top, something, someone has ownership of your life. Which is why Paul uses this very strong language, enslavement. Either one is a slave to sin and its dominion, or one is a slave of God and his dominion. In fact, at the beginning of several of Paul's letters, he identifies himself by uh, speaking of being a slave. A lot of versions use servant. It's the word doulos. It's better probably bondservant or slave. This is a person who is in a permanent position of servitude entirely at the disposal of another. That's how Paul saw himself in relation to God and of Jesus Christ. You've probably noticed um, in church life and perhaps other places, we will use uh, the language or term volunteer. We're looking for some volunteers. I use that term. I'll probably use that term again, but I'm not a huge fan. 
the God of Scripture isn't looking for mere volunteers, people who will serve on their terms, as if my service or my gifts or my time are some great advantage to God. We have to remember who we are and the extent to which our God in Jesus Christ went for the price of our redemption, to take ownership of us. He was crucified that we might be free. He was crushed that we might be forgiven. He was forsaken that we might belong. He was made sorrowful that we might receive the joy of our salvation. We are servants, slaves of God. We belong to him. Listen once more to Lloyd-Jones. He says, what you need to be told is that you are a slave of God, that you belong to God. You must talk less about yourself and more about him. Your business is to do what you know he wants you to do. He has bought you, bought you at such a price, such a cost, in order that you may do so. That's how the Apostle Paul preaches holiness. It is not a sentimental teaching which offers us some marvelous experience, It's a manly, almost a military exhortation. Remember who you are. You've been set free from that old slavery. You're now a slave of God. Pull yourself together. It doesn't mean by your own moral bootstraps. But remember who you are in Jesus Christ. And realize who your owner is. Who your master is. Finally, we should see what this freedom produces. Paul says, you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's end, eternal life. It's very counterintuitive. Freedom from sin and slavery to God is not a life of bondage. It is a life of growth. Freedom to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is. Growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We remember that unbroken chain that Paul speaks about in Romans 8, 29. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Unbroken link there. And that's what we have here. Freedom, those who have been set free in Christ, are led to sanctification. And its end is eternal life. Eternal, eternal life. We might have a limited number of days on this earth, but life in Christ has no end. How often it is when we think of life that we define it between that time of birth and physical death. That's that's my life. That's what I have. But as Paul says, The the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Remember what Jesus said to that thief next to him on the cross? Even today, he said, upon your physical death, even today you will be with me in paradise. Here is the truth. The day of our physical death will be the greatest day you have yet experienced. Today, you will be with me in paradise. A greater day is coming, 
the return of our Lord Jesus, the resurrection of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. But even at death, we will be with the Lord in glory. Without sin, without pain, without war, without suffering. At the end of the last battle in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it says this, And as he spoke, Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they, will, that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray together. Our glorious God, how we thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessings of the civil freedoms that we enjoy. And yet we pray, O oh Lord, that, um, that our hearts would be awakened to the reality of who we are in you of that great and profound change that you have accomplished in the life of your people, setting them on a course in a new territory, a path of growth in Jesus Christ, a path of life everlasting. We pray, O oh Lord, that your word would sink deeply into our hearts, that it would shape us, our mind, our living, our countenance, all for your glory. That we encourage one another, Lord, with the truth of who we are in you, all that we have. And we will give you thanks as you do that work in us, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.